Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Good to greet you. Thank you to all of you who are in person for not letting the rain keep you from church. I want to also welcome all those folks who are joining us online and want to give a special welcome to all our friends at Impact Bethany today. We're so glad that you're a part of uh, this part of our service as you worship together at your campus. I want to give a special welcome and greeting to anybody who might be a guest with us today. This is uh, the fourth and final weekend of a special message series called Truth Over Trend. And if you've been here from the beginning so far, you know we've talked about gender identity, what the Bible has to say about gender identity, what the truth of the scripture is about that, what the truth of the scripture is related to same-sex relationships, and what the truth of the scriptures is related to the deconstruction of faith. <clears throat> this weekend, we're gonna conclude with a message called How to Stand Up for Biblical Truth. And as we begin, I've got my Bible open to John chapter 18. This is a passage of scripture uh, where Jesus is before Pilate. So Jesus, of course, was arrested. He was put through a series of trials that were all illegal, and uh, he was brought before Pilate, and there was a brief conversation that took place. And so, I'm going to read John chapter 18, verses 37 and 38, and because we always make the public reading of Scripture a part of our service, if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand with me as I read. We'll put these verses up on the screen so you can follow along. But this is a pretty famous exchange. If you're a student of the Bible, between Jesus and Pilate, it begins in John chapter 18, verse 37. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate asked. With this he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always ask that God would bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Uh, my friend, who many of you know, John Caldwell, who was for 36 years the founding pastor at Kingsway Christian Church in Avon, Indiana, wrote a great article in the Christian Standard back in 2021 based on this conversation between Pilate and Jesus that was simply called, What is Truth? And here's what he writes about this exchange between the two of them. We're all familiar with Pilate's question of Jesus, what is truth? In context, I believe Pilate was mostly being sarcastic, though with a shred of genuine curiosity. Pilate was raised in a pagan society that worshiped Caesar as God during a time of many opposing philosophies. In that day, people did not recognize absolute truth. In other words, it was in many regards, much like today, when the notion of truth has become controversial, a day in which most people consider there to be no such thing as absolute truth truth. And then he wrote these words. The result of that for the Romans in the first century was a freefall when it came to moral values. And friends, as I stand up here this morning, I feel compelled to tell you that I believe we're living in that very same reality, experiencing that very same moral freefall 
in 21st century America. And it's because of that that we're concluding this special series with this message called How to Stand Up for Biblical Truth. But the more I thought about it, the more I tried to write the message, the more I realized that the fundamental reason why we are living in this moral freefall today is we have lost touch with the reality of objective truth. And objective truth is simply truth that is the same for everyone, whether they agree with it or not. In that article I mentioned as we began, written by John Caldwell, he asks his own question, what is truth? And then he goes on to answer his question like this. Truth, as it's used in this article, is defined by that which conforms to fact or reality. Imagine that. (laughs) From a biblical perspective, objective truth is that which is consistent with the mind, the will, and the character, and the being of God. And friends, that's not just a great definition of truth, it should be the only definition of truth for someone who claims to be a follower of Christ. The problem, however, when it comes to our modern world is that so many people reject objective truth and live with the belief that you can define truth based on the subjective realm of your feelings or the subjective realm of your impressions. That's why there are so many people who will say, well, I just think, or I just believe, or I just feel, and then you can go in head and fill in the blank. And what this is at the end of the day is one of the greatest lies of postmodernism. And it's the main reason why there is so much frustration and so much confusion in the world today that are related to matters, excuse me, related to matters of morality because that kind of truth carries no real authority. The truth that you have in your life because it just feels right to you or because you think it's right has no authority. In contrast, in contrast to that, the objective truth of, of God, the objective truth of the scriptures is authoritative truth and it can be applied to your life with the authority of God himself regardless of your feelings and impressions. Over the last many years, because I, I've been a pastor for so long, I've, I've gotten the opportunity in lots of different venues and settings to speak about the subject of preaching, and I've gotten the opportunity to write a lot about the subject of preaching. I write a column on preaching, just exclusively on preaching in every edition of the Christian Standard Magazine. Some of you who have roots in the, in the uh, Restoration Movement Christian Church will know exactly what that is. Some of you probably don't, and that's pretty sad. Um, because it's a part of our heritage in, in one way, but it's not your fault or my fault. It's just the magazine is not printed and distributed the way it used to be. But I've had the opportunity to talk a lot about and write a lot about preaching. And one of the most significant convictions I have about preaching is that it needs to be done with authority. And it needs to be done with authority because it's based on authority. It's based on the authority of God's word. That doesn't mean you can't do it with love. That doesn't mean you can't do it with sensitivity. But if you're going to preach the truth of God's word, you've got to do it from a position of authority because objective truth, remember, objective truth is truth that's the same for everyone, whether they believe it or not. Objective truth is authoritative truth. There's a personal story that 
that John Caldwell shares in that article. And it's interesting because he's shared this story with me personally on a couple of different occasions as we've visited or had lunch together or something like that. And he talks about how he began his college experience as a pre-med student at a major state university. And he says one of his biology professors was an avowed atheist and evolutionist who loved to make fun of Christians and loved to make fun of Christianity. But then he says, but there was one girl, one girl in his biology class who would respectfully challenge the anti-biblical statements the professor would make, and he would respond by ridiculing her and ridiculing Christianity even more. But John says that over a period of time, he noticed that the professor never objectively or factually responded to any of her questions. He said that seemed unfair, and he began to wonder if he actually was able to offer objective answers. And that made him think about his own faith. He said, I was a Christian, but the truth is I wasn't living up to the commitment to Christ I made as a child. I wonder how many of us that describes today. And so he began to do his own personal study of apologetics on his own. And apologetics is just the name that's used to describe this study that we're involved in to try to defend or prove Christianity in a rational way. And as a result, his faith was strengthened his faith in God was strengthened. His faith in the Word of God was strengthened. And he left that university, enrolled in Ozark Christian College, and became one of the great preachers that our churches have ever known. But what he said after he finished that apologetic study on his own that changed his life, he said, that's what objective truth will do. And so the bottom line for all of us who claim to be followers of Christ is are we genuinely, am I, are you genuinely committed to the objective and authoritative truth of God's word? And when we have the opportunity, are we willing to stand up and speak up for that truth? Recently, I, I ran across an article by, or about rather, Alistair Begg, who is... Um, the senior pastor at Parkside Church in Cleveland has a teaching ministry called Truth For Life. He's on Moody Radio here in the Indianapolis area every week. He's one of my favorite preachers on Moody Radio. Maybe you're familiar with him, maybe not. I, I, I just think he's a tremendous preacher. He's just so good. But he was speaking at the camp, on the campus of Liberty University, a Christian a liberal arts university, but filled with students with all different kinds of beliefs, I'm sure. And he was talking to them from the book of Jude, which you may or may not be familiar with. It's a New Testament book and only one chapter. It's very brief, but it's very powerful. I preached a message series on the book of Jude several years ago that simply was called Urgent because the message of the book of Jude is urgent. The message was all about the importance of Christians, the importance of them as believers to make a commitment to refuse to compromise when it came to the truth of the gospel. And he talked about the power of the gospel in that message and how important it is to be grounded in an understanding of the gospel because whenever you find a purse or a person or a church or an academic institution that's shifting from a conviction about the truth of the Christian faith or the truth of the gospel or the truth of, of, um, of, um, of, of just matters of faith in every 
area of application to our lives, whenever you find people moving from a true Christian faith to a generic faith, he says, I guarantee you it's the beginning of the end. And so we have to be resolute and strong and remaining convicted and, and challenged and faithful to what the scriptures teach us, especially when it comes to the gospel, which is the most powerful thing in the world. I don't, I, again, I don't know if you're very familiar with the New Testament book of Jude, which is his text in that message, but the entire message of the book of Jude is about apostasy, and apostasy is a word is, that's used to describe the falling away or with the withdrawal or the abandonment of the Christian faith, and so much of the time, apostasy, apostasy begins in, in your life or mine or in anybody's life with just worldliness and moral compromise, and we live in a world that encourages that kind of compromise every single day, and so that's why we have to be so resolute in standing against it. <clears throat> in Paul's writings, he, in 2 Timothy, he talked about an associate of his, a man who was his disciple, a man was, who was a member of his team when it came <clears throat> to sharing the gospel and spreading the good news about Jesus. His name was Demas. And he says in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10 about Demas, he says, for Demas, because he loved the world, has deserted me. And sometimes we don't think it's dangerous to have one foot in the world and one foot in our faith, but it is dangerous because in the end, one will win. And too often, it's the world. And so he says, you've got to be resolute and strong. He's talking to these college kids, college students, about being resolute and strong in their commitment to the scriptures and their commitment to the gospel and the power of the gospel. One of the things he said was when Christians do not give the gospel the reverence and respect it deserves as the inerrant word of God, they sometimes remove sections from it or add parts of their own. And he used the example of biblical marriage saying that Christians sometimes ignore parts of the scripture that do not align with their beliefs, such as passages about homosexuality. He also talked about the corruption that happens in the world when we accept sin and moral relativism. But here's what resonated with me the most in his message that day to those students. Alistair Begg, I think, is somewhere around 70 years old, so he's a little bit older than I am. And he said, I want to say to you as an older man now that if you are in Christ, you have no freedom to believe anything other than what Jesus has said. <clears throat> if you believe in Christ, you have no freedom to behave outside the shepherding boundaries of a God who knows best. And I would echo those same words. So in order for us to ever stand up for biblical truth, we have to first have a commitment to biblical truth. And so that's a question all of us need to ask ourselves today. Do I believe that biblical truth is objective truth and the only authority for life and living for everyone today, but in particular for people of faith? Do I really believe that? And if you believe that, then the question becomes so important, how to stand up for biblical truth. Once we've made the commitment to believe that the Bible is our only source of authority for life and living. How do we stand up for biblical truth? I've got several things here. I'll try to go through them quickly. If you'd like to take notes, you can write each one of them down. 
The first thing I wrote down in my notes is that the first thing you have to do is you have to guard your heart. I love the words from Proverbs chapter four and verse 23, where the proverb writer says, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. In fact, read those words with me. Let me hear your voices. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Everything flows from the heart. And of course, you know that the heart in the Bible, when it's used as a reference, is not so much a reference to our feelings and our emotions like we think about it in our American culture, but it is a reference to where the source of our life begins. It's much closer as a reference to the mind than it is to our emotions or our feelings. And if you're gonna take a stand for biblical truth and you've gotta make sure that your heart, or in other words, your spiritual life is in order, you gotta make sure that the testimony of your life can back up the testimony of your words. Are you like me and you are sick and tired of hearing people stand up, especially in the political realm of our country, and stand up and make speeches for, for, for Christian values or spiritual values only to find that their life is full of moral decay. And every time that happens, it just weakens the message. And so you've got to guard your heart I'm not saying you have to be perfect to stand up for biblical truth, but I always think of the Apostle Paul and the commitment he had to make sure that he guarded his life as he went on the mission that God gave him to spread the message, the gospel, with Gentiles in particular. I love this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 where he he talks about uh, that in the end of the chapter in verse 27, he says this. Listen, notice the language, the seriousness of the language he uses that he talk, that, that he uses as he talks about guarding his life. He says, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself may not be disqualified for the prize. And one simple application of those words is he understood the power of his personal life and his personal testimony when it came to his ministry of preaching the gospel. And he knew he needed to guard his life from failure so he wouldn't lose his credibility A little bit later, Paul went on to write these words in Ephesians chapter six and verse 12 that describe the reality of what he faced every single day and what every believer faces every single day, especially when you're trying to stand up for biblical truth. He says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. He knew what he was talking about because Paul knew something that all of us need to understand. Before Satan targets any ministry you're involved in, you can believe that he will first target your heart and try to destroy your life from the inside out. But if all you've ever done in your life of faith, and don't misunderstand what I'm saying here, but listen to me close. If all you've ever done in your life of faith is go to church or go to a Bible study, and you've never really stepped into the world of speaking up for spiritual truth, for God's truth, or, or, or taking a stand in any way for God's truth, you just need to know that, there is a, that spiritual warfare is a very real thing in this world that we live in. That's why Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And so if you're gonna speak up for biblical truth, number one, you need to make sure that your life actually stands for biblical truth, that it's built on and grounded in biblical truth. And you do that when you guard your heart. The second thing I've written down here is you need to think biblically. If you're gonna stand up for biblical truth, you need to think biblically. Because Christians need to understand, they need to genuinely understand that the Bible speaks to the moral issues of our day. That means it's biblical to to take a stand on certain issues. And I'll just pull three of them. 
three issues out that are prominent in the culture that we live in today. It's important to take a biblical stand on, for example, abortion, on same-sex relationships, and on transgenderism, because none of those are the will of God for anyone. If you believe in biblical truth, when it comes to abortion, Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16 says, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. When it comes to same-sex relationships, the Bible provides God's blueprint for marriage and for his good gift of sex. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, when we read these words, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. In the Bible, here's the thing makes no exception. You can start in the book of Genesis chapter one and you can go all the way to the last chapter in the book of Revelation. The Bible makes no exception to that for same-sex relationships. You see the Bible praising and honoring the marriage of a man and woman from cover to cover, but when it comes to same-sex relationships, all you read about in the Bible is the Bible speaking negatively about those relationships whenever they're mentioned. And the relevant passages are Genesis chapter 19, Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 22, chapter 20 and verse 13, Romans chapter 1 verses 18 through 32, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 9 through 11, 1 Timothy chapter 1 verses 8 through 11, and Jude 7. There's only one chapter, remember, in the book of Jude. The Bible speaks to the reality of same-sex relationships, but it doesn't say one good thing. When it comes to transgenderism, the Bible simply knows no other gender categories beyond male and female. While men and women may express masculinity and femininity in different ways, the scripture still operates with the binary category of male and female. And we need to remember that. You are either one or the other. And the genetic anomaly of intersex individuals does not or does not undermine that God-ordained design. The gender anomaly of people who are born intersex just gives, it just gives us another example of the groaning and frustration of creation at the reality that we are living in a world that is not the way it was supposed to be. The world today is not the way God designed it to be in the beginning. Sin infected everything and victimizes people, oftentimes randomly, in ways that are so frustrating because they seem so unfair. But Genesis chapter one, verses 27 and 28 says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male. And female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. And friends, those verses weren't given to us just as an explanation of creation, they were given to us also to show us the pattern, God's pattern and design for sexuality between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. He created us to be sexual creatures and the natural order is for that sexuality to be expressed through males and females in the covenant of marriage. 
God goes on to affirm that in Genesis 2 and verse 24, a verse I mentioned earlier. Now, I'll stop right there with those three things. As Christians, we need to think biblically. But it's not just those three issues that we need to think biblically on. We need to think biblically about all of life. We need to think biblically about government. We need to think biblically about money and finances. We need to think biblically about all human relationships, especially in a world that is so divided from a racial standpoint today. We need to think biblically about immigration. And I could go on and on and on because the Bible does speak to these issues It does. I am so deeply concerned about the financial mismanagement that happens every single day in our government. Are you? The United States of America is in debt somewhere to the tune of $31.5 trillion. And the big debate right now is raising the debt ceiling once again without doing anything to cut spending. What would you do if you were in debt like that? I mean, think, seriously, what would you do? I mean, you know what? We're just as smart as most of those people, smarter probably than most. <laughs> what would you do? Would you keep spending money? Is there ever a circumstance when it's right to spend money that you don't have? <laughs> I mean, seriously, what would you do? I know that there are people here who understand finances on a much deeper level than I do, but I'm telling you today, I believe with all my heart that if you just took the financial principles that you find in the book of Proverbs along with what the book of Proverbs teaches us about discipline and self-restraint, you could solve all of those problems over the course of time. Every single one of us just absolutely needs to find a quiet time in the next day or so where we can be alone and ask ourselves this question as we move forward in life, whatever season of life you're in, do I believe in the authority of God's word for life and living? And here's why we need to ask ourselves the question, because the world we live in does not. And that's been made clear over and over again. So do we allow the events of the world, the moral, the political, the cultural, and the economic events of the world to shape how we view God's word? Or do we let God and his words shape how we view the events of the world? That's the question. What choice are you going to make? And all these things I've talked to you about related from a biblical standpoint, abortion, same-sex relationships, transgenderism, and so many others, they're just, that's, I'm just talking to you about biblical truths. I'm not talking about political things. I'm not talking, these are not political uh, talking points to me. These are biblical truths. Several years ago, I was walking down this hallway over here to my left in the classroom wing and our soul care pastor, Ken Jones, and another man was walking down the wing as well. And so I said hello to them because I'm a friendly guy. And Ken Jones, our soul care pastor said hello to me. And the other man just glared at me, just kept walking, didn't say a word. Now, we're talking about a pretty small space there, so there's no real avoiding the awkwardness of that moment. Sometime later, I asked Ken if he, you know, who that man was and if he went to our church. And Ken told me his name and said, he used to go to church here, but left because he said you, meaning me, were too political in your preaching. I don't even feel the need to respond to that. I didn't then and I don't now. But I am going to say this with no malice and no anger in my heart. I'm going to say it 
with the heart of a shepherd who loves you, who cares about you, who cares about your soul. When political talking points and biblical truths collide, you have to make a decision. And if your political affiliation is more important to you than your biblical convictions, then you've got a problem when it comes to your faith. I don't have a political worldview. I don't have the worldview of a Democrat. I don't have the worldview of a Republican. I have a biblical worldview. I view every single aspect of life and living through the lens of the scriptures. And that is the only thing that shapes the convictions of my life. That's it, nothing else. The third thing I've written down here is be informed. My favorite verse in the book of Proverbs, I told you many times before, is Proverbs 13, 16, that says, every prudent man acts out of knowledge, but a fool exposes his folly. Once again, read that with me. Let me hear your voices. Every prudent man acts out of knowledge, but a fool exposes his folly. Believers need to know what's happening in the world around them because that knowledge can open the door for you to be able to be the light of the world that Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Verses 14 and 16 said, you're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your father in heaven. This little light of mine, you remember that? I'm gonna let it shine. It's important to know what's happening in our world. It's important to know what's happening in our nation, our government, our communities, our, our schools, the culture around us, and on and on, because that allows us to act and respond from a position of knowledge. But I am going to attach a warning to that. <clears throat> and maybe the word warning is too strong, but it's the word I'm going to use. As we become informed, and as we become aware of what's happening around us in the world, in our country, in our city, in our community, in our schools, and whatever other words you want to use, I'm going to also remind you of how important it is to hang on to Paul's words from Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6 when he said, do not be anxious about anything. He goes on to say, instead of being anxious, we need to pray. And here's why I want to emphasize those words, do not be anxious about anything, because I got to tell you, in honest confession, friends, that spending the last eight weeks of my life preparing for this message series. <clears throat> has not only been depressing and discouraging, but it has left me feeling hopeless at times. I'm not naive about the world we live in, I never have been. But the level of confusion and the level of frustration and in many cases, <clears throat> the level of sheer perversion in the world today is heartbreaking. So we need to pay attention to what's happening around us, from laws being passed on a national and local level to what's being taught and allowed in our schools to what our children, as well as each and every one of us, allow to influence our minds. And I'll go back to the words we looked at earlier from Proverbs 4.23, where the proverb writer says, above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. We got one more point. When it's time to stand, take a stand. A few years ago, and many of you will remember this, a school board in the Center Grove School Corporation was facing a decision of whether or not to allow transgender students, people who 
students who identified as a sex other than the one that was identified at their birth to use the bathrooms of the sex they identified with. And I'll never forget, first of all, sitting in my office upstairs with one of the school board members, not a school board member today, but was at the time, who was a long, long time member of Mount Pleasant, wonderful man, talking, reading scripture, praying, weeping, Some local pastors in the area reached out to me because I have been here for a long time. I don't know the, uh, I, don't, I don't actually know a lot of the pastors in this um, community, maybe like I should know, but honestly, I have a hard enough time keeping up with all of you <laughs> to have time to keep up with anybody else, with somebody else or anybody else, but because Mount Pleasant is such an identifiable church, has such a strong reputation, church about 140 years old, been in this community that entire time. And because I've been here a long time, they reached out to me if I would, <clears throat> to see if I would write a letter that everybody would sign, <clears throat> go to the school board meeting, read the letter, urge them to not make that decision, to allow students to use the bathroom of the sex they identified with, which is just an amazing thought in some ways. Again, I'm not trying to be insensitive because I'm not an insensitive person at all. Hopefully you know that by now. But, you know, to, to make a decision to allow a student who is, for example, a boy who identifies as a girl to use spaces, private spaces that are restricted to biological girls to make them feel safe without any regard to how safe biological girls feel in those spaces when that happens, makes absolutely no sense to me. Just doesn't. So we went to the, so, we, so I wrote the letter and then an effort was made to try to get a coalition of all the pastors in the, the school districts, uh, outreach there to sign the letter. But you know, there were several who chose not to. And uh, they chose not to because uh, they, they wanted to demonstrate some level of tolerance in their life to not immediately alienate anybody else. And I understand that. I totally understand that. And there have been times in my life when I have done the same thing in certain circumstances. But if you're gonna live with a biblical worldview and you're gonna steward the lives of children in a way that pleases God, you cannot, in good conscience, give open or passive approval to sin. You just can't. I told you in the opening message of this series, when we talked about gender identity, that my focus was on children and families that were struggling with this issue, with gender confusion, I told you that I was really concerned about transgender activism today, but the focus of that message, and I hope that came through, if not, go back and listen to it again, was I just wanted to speak to the reality of what was happening in families and with children today. And I tried to do that as clearly and as possible with as much sensitivity as possible. But I am concerned about a level of transgenderism uh, activism that's sweeping across our country today 
And I will just tell you this, I believe that there is an element of transgenderism that should be viewed as nothing less than an assault on God himself. And that's because it's evil. I'm not saying that children who struggle with gender identity from genuine gender dysphoria or just cultural confusion are evil. Again, I tried to address that as thoroughly as possible in the opening message. And all, at the end of the day, I can be responsible for what I say. I can't be responsible for what you hear. And it's not always the same thing. And I got 43 years of experience that teaches me that. But there is an element of the transgender movement beyond just the confusion that happens in the lives of our children, again, who are suffering from genuine gender dysphoria or cultural confusion today, that is evil. Because it's an assault on God, one of the fundamental truths of the Bible is, again, Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And the value of truth, or of that truth, rather, is reiterated throughout the Bible. But there is a blatant rejection of that truth in the lives of so many people today, and they don't just reject it, they mock God as they do. And you can't read what the Bible says about the godlessness of the last days and not make a connection to what's happening in our world right now today. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 is a passage that begins with these words, there are some terrible times coming. And then Paul goes on to describe people who will only love themselves, people who have no self-control, and people who only love pleasure. And God gives some incredibly strong words about people who mock and abandon him to pursue their own depraved desires. They're found in Romans chapter one and verse 24 where Paul, where Paul writes and says, therefore God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. And those words God gave them over in the original language of the New Testament are a judicial term. And in this context, it simply means that God gave them over to the consequences of their choices and actions. And there is no good thing that comes from rejecting God or his truth because at some point, friends, God will let you reap what you sow. We live under the command to love people, to model and share the good news of the gospel, and the belief that Jesus can change anyone's life, anyone. But we also live under the warning of the scripture in Romans 12, 9 that says, love must be sincere, hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. And our enemy, the devil, works through the evil of this world, no matter how celebrated or embraced it is by the world. And we need to protect ourselves and we need to protect our families. So when it's time to stand, stand up and speak up. Because this is what we stand for, and this is how we'll close. The team can get ready to come. We stand, first of all, for the glory and the honor of God. <clears throat> I am so thankful that so much of my faith was formed when I was just a boy, growing up in church and going to Sunday school every single week. I'm so thankful that I grew up in church in a time when church operated the way that it did. I know it's so different today in so many different ways. 
But I was taught all the stories of the Bible when I was young. I've known them my entire life. And one of my favorites, just like most people, is the story of David and Goliath. And I think about when the army of Israel was lined up in the Valley of Elah against the army of the Philistines, and every day the giant Goliath would come down into the valley, and he would issue this challenge, let's not fight this big war, just send your best man down. We'll go one-on-one, and whoever wins, wins. David's brothers were there, and so some of his brothers were there, and so he traveled there with provisions for them, and he got there. On the day he got there was just about the time when when Goliath walked down into the valley, and he issued that challenge. And David's response in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 26 was just this, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? That was his motivation. The honor and the glory of God. So we stand up for the honor and the glory of God. We stand up for the generations following us. Our hearts are heavy every single day of our lives for the world that our children and our grandchildren will inherit. There's no opportunity for us to let our guard down when it comes to the future of these children and grandchildren and other generations that we love so dearly. And so we need to be men and women of spiritual integrity and we need to be men and women of spiritual courage and we can't let our guard down. Solomon, wisest man who ever lived, arguably, wrote in Proverbs 23, 23, buy the truth and do not sell it. Get wisdom, discipline, and understanding. And that sounds so good, but then what happened to Solomon? He went and blew it all by living a life of pluralism and idolatry and compromise based on the pagan wives that he had in his palace. You can't stand just on word alone. Your life's got to back it up. Don't destroy your witness with the way you live your life. And we stand for the truth of God's word. I love these words in 1 Corinthians 16, 13. They're written and used primarily as a reference to men, but they apply to men and women. Paul just said, be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be men of courage. Be strong. One of the great verses in the Bible is Romans 1.16, where Paul writes and says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Somebody say amen to that today. The gospel... In the original language of the New Testament, the Greek word euangelion, it's the good news that Jesus came to bring a better life. It's the good news that God loves you. It's the good news that Jesus died for you so that you can be forgiven of your sin and have the opportunity of eternal life. It's the good news that salvation is a result of faith and not human effort. It's the good news that you can have a new and a better life and it can start right now today. We gotta hang on to the gospel and the power of the gospel. About eight weeks ago, I tore a page of a notebook pad that I use in my office. I tore a page off and I wrote these words on it. If the gospel is not good news for transgender people, gay and lesbian people, and people with questions and doubts, it's not good news. The gospel is good news for everyone. And that's something we can always count on. So let's stand for the gospel.